introduce uh, today's speaker. Is it is a pre-recorded, so I know exactly how long it's going to be, <laughs> and we will have time for some conversation at the end. Um, so, Rusty, take it away. Thank you, Eric. All right. Good morning, Roswell men. How are you? Morning. Morning. Greetings from Central Alabama. I wish I could be there. I will be there before long, but I wish I could be there. Uh, but it is a privilege to introduce uh, David Morkin this morning. And as Eric says, um, this high tech ministry uh, prayer breakfast that we do have done for 30 years now is, is pretty amazing. Um, and I'll give you one amazing thing that came out of that breakfast. We used our host tables. It's a prayer breakfast where you have uh, good food as well. And we did a, as best we could contact tracing. And with a thousand people, we didn't have anyone, not a single reported illness uh, as a result of gathering at that breakfast. So the Lord has chosen to bless this organization, which is trying to bring the light of Jesus into the technology workplace. And um, we, the speaker that we had this year is David Morkin. I have only known David for about a year. Um, and I've known his partner, Hendry Kaysner, uh for a few years, uh, five or six years. They're amazing men, the two of them. And they have built one of the most important telecommunication companies in the United States. And uh, you will hear that. But if you're not so familiar with tech, uh, the company they built is called Bandwidth. And Bandwidth's not one that you might know, but you're using it this morning. It powers most of the online systems like Zoom. Bandwidth is a critical component that powers the audio underneath Zoom. And it does it for Google and does it for Microsoft Teams and it does it for virtually any nationwide network. And uh, you'll hear David tell that story just a little bit. I'd like to to tell you one thing though, uh, about connecting him to Roswell and then just a word about him. So we have a speaker dinner the night before and, and we lay hands on these guys and pray for them. And it's with our wives and there's maybe uh, 20 some people in the, in the room, 30 some people in the room. We get to know each other a little bit. And as we went around the room, introducing ourselves and talking SEC football, um, David came back and said, well, I went to a little school that you probably have never heard of called Oral Roberts University. And uh, I was able to say when it came to me that I used to climb an oak tree out in rural Oklahoma on top of the hill I lived, I could climb up the oak tree and over on the horizon, far away, I could see the Tower of Power and the City of Faith and actually see Oral Roberts, if it, Oral Roberts University if it was a sunny day. And when he and I explored that, we came to learn that he was there when Mike Miller was the Dean of Men at Oral Roberts University. So for the, those of you that are in the Mike Miller fan club with me, that was the connection. But when you hear David this morning, it's a tremendous story of faith. Um, and I would just like for you, as you listen to what he has to say, and I'm anxious to go through it, hear it again. I've not reviewed it since then. But when he gets toward the end of his remarks, 
he uh, he shares something at the end that shows an exceptional understanding of priority in his life. And uh, I want your want us to tune our ears for that to understand uh, priority decisions is something that we share in high tech ministry when there's a conflict between our life in Jesus and our business and, uh, you know, and our money, uh, can we really make that call? And uh, as the Lord does, he had a real-time call he had to make, and I'd love for you to hear about that, and if there's a moment, I might add a little uh, color to it at the end. So without further ado, uh, a man <clears throat> that inspires me that I respect, uh, David Morkin. Thank you, Rusty. Let's see if I can do this the right way. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Carissa. Look forward to meeting you in person, Carissa. And thank you all. I want to especially thank the High Tech Ministries group. You're amazing. To Bill Leonard, the founder of this 29-year running celebration. Carissa was gracious in that introduction, uh, calling me a number of things. But I'll warn you, if you're a guest here of a table host, the thing that I am most proud of is I am a Jesus freak. So I apologize for that. I want to begin by talking about another David Morkin, uh, my grandfather for whom I'm named. And I want to take you back to 1942, four months after Pearl Harbor. The Japanese are racing south with their army and their navy taking island after island, city after city. But there are a few Han Solo types who, with their own Millennium Falcon equivalent freighters, are evacuating Americans all over the Pacific. One of them is racing toward Makassar, Indonesia. And as boats are fleeing Makassar, passing him as he's going toward it, there are fewer and fewer boats, and they realize they're one of the last boats there. And as he pulls up, this Han Solo merchant mariner with his freighter to evacuate Westerners of all kinds, as the Japanese are very, very close, he sees a handsome young American family on the dock with their two daughters. He says, what are you doing here? Why are you still here? And I like to imagine what my grandfather said at that moment was in my vernacular, I'm telling people about Jesus. You see, my, my grandfather was a missionary in the interior Borneo jungles to the Kubu people, the Stone Age tribes, and they were among the last to decide to leave in the face of the Japanese invasion. World War II happens. It's now 1949. Our Han Solo merchant mariner is again going after a lost cause. He's headed to Shanghai because Mao Zedong is chasing Chiang Kai-shek's army into the sea. And as 300,000 of Chiang Kai-shek's soldiers are being airlifted to the island of Formosa, our merchant mariner freighter in 1949 is steaming to Shanghai to evacuate anybody who's there. And as he pulls up to the dock with guns in the distance and people fleeing and an airlift going on of massive proportions, he sees on the dock a handsome young American family and now their two daughters, and fortunately for me, my father, very young. And you can only imagine the merchant mariner, same guy, looking at my grandfather and saying, dude, 
what are you doing here? And then he probably remembered, I know, I know, you're telling people about Jesus, right? And he was. And he went on. Well, first of all, fortunately for me, they made it back safe all the way to the U.S. And my grandfather went on to tell many people about Jesus. You can imagine him later in China in a packed stadium that many of us haven't been in recently with tens of thousands of Chinese back in China, and he's introducing at that time a young evangelist from North Carolina to the Chinese for the first time, Billy Graham. He later went to Kabul, Afghanistan, and started the first Christian church there, baptized me when I was 13, um, and continued to tell people about Jesus. And it's for him that I'm named. Fast forward, and I'm 22, and I'm in a car, and I'm driving through small town America to my college roommate's wedding. And I am on Christmas Day, that afternoon, that evening, driving through small town America, and I'm looking in front window after front window as I'm driving to my college roommate's wedding, and there's Christmas tree after Christmas tree and family after family through the window as I'm racing to this wedding. And I begin to weep. In the previous nine months, I had had three huge events occur in my life. The first, I had graduated from Oral Roberts University where the greatest man that I've ever known, my father was a longtime faculty member and my mother was a one-time women's chaplain. Graduated and went right to officer candidate school in the Marine Corps for a crucible where we lost half of the candidates to graduate and become second lieutenants. And then with a shaved head, right from OCS to the front row of constitutional law at Notre Dame, sitting at the position of attention because I was completely brainwashed at that point, with a shaved head, and went through the first semester of law school. Those three things in rapid succession find me in this car on Christmas night, driving to my college roommate's wedding, weeping because I am extraordinarily lonely. You can imagine like Adam in the garden by himself, lonely. And for the first time in my life, I ask God for a bride. Lord, I'm pathetic. I need a bride. Next day, the last, the wedding party is all assembling. This is back when we could actually go to the gate at an airport. And we're getting the last part of the wedding person out of the wedding party. And off of the plane comes Chriselle Bakken. And it was like the light on me right now, all around her. And I thought to myself, someday, I'm going to ask this young lady to marry me. That day was 27 days later. <laughs> and actually, 15 days later, when I was back at Notre Dame, I took my entire, Marine Corps doesn't pay for you to go to law school, I took my entire room and board and book stipend from my law loan and spent it on an engagement ring and immediately went to Elkhart, Indiana and signed up at UPS to pack trucks at night so that I would have food after I impulse bought the engagement ring. When I dropped to one knee in the snow next to St. Mary's Lake and asked Chriselle to marry me, and when she said yes, that's when I knew overwhelmingly, as John just talked about, that Jesus Christ the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
abundantly loved me more than I could ever imagine. My parents, my father, as I said, the greatest man I've ever known, my parents were amazing, raising me in a Christian home, showing me the way that, that I should go. And I experienced the Holy Spirit firsthand on campus at Oral Roberts University, but it was my bride through whom I felt and understood the unending love of my Savior. We went back to South Bend after we got married that summer. Soon thereafter, the next year, we welcomed our first child, Michael. I'm hammering uh, in law school and discovered the World Wide Web, looking at an engineering, uh, I'm in the engineering lab, supposed to be studying for finals, and I, I see this screen, and I see the World Wide Web when there's about 100 sites on it. And um, I'm getting ready to go on active duty after graduation and tend to take the Virginia bar, go on active duty, but the Marine Corps calls up and says, the pipeline's full, you're not going on active duty, so what do I do? We pray and we max out a credit card with our student discount and buy a SunSpark 5 workstation and we move in with my parents. And I get a, four, I get a 56K dedicated connection to the internet for $1,400 a month. And I start cold calling 600 mutual funds and I tell them about the information superhighway. And they say, the what? This is fall of 94. And I register the bandwidth domain when it's free. If you had an IP address, you send it to the internet, you get a domain for free. And I have $75,000 of law loans. We welcome Grace, our daughter, our second baby. We're living with my folks and I'm trying to get a startup off the ground knowing the Marine Corps can call me at any time and say, now it's time to go on active duty. About a year later, with some modest success at the company, I get that call. Hey, you got two weeks to shave your head and report to Quantico. I conduct a fire sale of a very small fledgling business. We go to Quantico, six months of small infantry training in the mud. Naval Justice School, two months. I've now done three years of law school, six months of infantry training, two, two months of Naval Justice School. I show up in Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii, and the commanding general looks at all the qualifications and says, that's great, you're a judge advocate, you're a, a lawyer warrior, don't care, you're now a headquarters company commander. The needs of the Corps. Um, did that, litigated for three years as a prosecutor, special assistant U.S. attorney in the courtrooms, um, prosecuting misdemeanors and felonies. And at the end of that time, a big thing was happening. My law school loan deferment period for active service was expiring. <coughs> so I owed about somewhere uh, around 75 grand and a captain's pay isn't gonna get that done. We also uh, wanted to go back into the startup world and prayed and decided we're gonna go after and start this little thing called bandwidth. Um, got under a desk and prayed about it and when Chriselle and I had conviction that we would do it, it was not exciting to tell your friends that you're moving back in with your parents again. Uh, we welcomed Helen, our third child, when we were in, on active duty in Hawaii. Moved in with my folks, but this time it's in a duplex. Right, we got our fourth baby on the way. We were all on the same side of the duplex. And I'm just trying to keep the lights on. I'm a full stack developer before there was such a thing. I had a Microsoft Access database under the desk connected to a gateway Pentium something or other, um, and I did all the CGI scripting to the Apache web server, cranked up the site all-nighters after all-nighters, and on August 
9th, threw the switch on the website for bandwidth.com and took the family camping. When I came back, I had so many thousands of leads for service, I didn't know what to do. Um, that's how the company began uh, in the very earliest days. I then get a call while we still owe 75 grand in law loans from a company called Global Crossing offering one million bucks for the site and for everything that, everything that I had done in about 120 days. <coughs> Chriselle and I pray, Lord, what's our calling? What are we supposed to do? And uh, probably the hardest no I ever said, I uh, called him back and said no. Um, and then continued to work as hard as I could as a sole proprietor with this site. Get a call from Sequoia Capital, go meet with them. They say, if you give up control, we'd like to take what you're doing, merge it with another portfolio company. I go out and meet with them, and I'm at such a point now, uh, I'm sleeping in the rental car because I can't afford a hotel room. And say no to that, go back, but begin desperately praying. Um, we're based in Park, Utah, Park, Park City, Utah at this time, but I go, back and I'm desperately praying, not for a bride, even though we were in Park City, Utah, um, but instead for a business partner, uh, a business partner. And I'm under my desk crying because I know I need a business partner to take advantage of this opportunity. Next morning, um, and I mean crying my eyes out under a desk, face on the carpet, God send me a business partner. Next day, I had done an interview about, I don't know how many months before with Forbes ASAP, a guy named Mo Malik and Penelope Patsuris. And the next morning, the Forbes article pops online. And it's about bandwidth as a commodity, what I'm doing with the site. Enron is all the talk because of bandwidth trading and my phone won't stop ringing. I hang it up, this is back when their desk phones, you hang it up, it rings. It's like, you could just do this, ring, 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 ring. And about the 30th conversation I have, there's a guy on the other end of the phone named Henry Kaysner. And just like I had with my bride, Chriselle, I knew within 30 seconds, Lord, and to be fair, night before I'm on my face praying, Forbes article hits, phone stop, doesn't stop ringing. I forget I've prayed for a partner, because it's crazy. Henry, on the other end of the phone, within 30 seconds, I remember, I nearly fell down, nearly dropped the phone, this is it. And for the next 10 years, Henry and I would spend more of our waking hours together building bandwidth. It wasn't pretty. Moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, we were sitting across from each other with a spit guard between us at a, at a desk that was about this narrow. On the phone hammering, I bought a car from an inmate over uh, email. And it was a destroyed Toyota Tercel with the dash uh, ripped out so you could see the road. And, I drove into the parking lot pretty proud that I finally, we finally had a second car, so Chriselle, and now uh, four kids, because Daniel was born in Park City, so Chriselle could have a car and I'd have a car. I go to work and the whole sales team on the first day says, hey, uh, hey boss, you need to come with us. What's the problem? Walk outside, walk out into the parking lot. One of them's got like a razor blade. I'm like, what is the problem with my car? And they point to this big sticker in the back window, 420, which is all about smoking pot. They're like, you can't do this. You can't drive a car with a 420 sticker on it. And so we, we razor blade it off. <laughs> Fast forward, um, Henry and I failed to raise money spectacularly. 0 for 40 on, on uh, Sand Hill Road. 
but God is so faithful to us, and we are so um, tied to him for favor uh, in the early days in so many different ways. Um, We're pretty frugal, as I talked about. In 2008, we go out to Google, 2007, I think, actually, and we tell Google, hey, we should be partners. You're doing this really cool Google Voice thing. We can provide the phone numbers, and they say, no, thank you. We're using a partner, PacWest, different carrier. We don't need to do anything with you guys. We got it. And I said, look, this is the way incumbents work. I think they're going to hold you, um, I think they're going to hold you a little bit hostage at some point. We think we should partner in a way that's more relational and long-term, and they pat me on my head and say, no thanks, go away. And the next week, their partner declares bankruptcy and takes about 500,000 numbers out of commission. I look like an Old Testament prophet. <laughs> I, I look like a genius, <clears throat> and I'm not at all. Uh, that's one <clears throat> incredible answer to prayer in business that we had. We then start thinking about Republic Wireless, <clears throat> and we develop a Wi-Fi first mobile handset tethered to the Sprint network, but it used Wi-Fi for calling. And we launched, not knowing what would happen, and overnight had 100,000 subscribers sign up, and over three years ramped it to just under 100 million in revenue, uh, which was pretty remarkable. And during this time, bandwidth was also growing, and we started getting offers for the company for 50 million, 100 million got walked around a campus in Seattle, offered 300 million. Um, another company um, in the Northeast, 480 million. Top floor of a huge skyscraper in Philadelphia being yelled at, what's your number? <clears throat> and said, no, 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 no. And decided we would spin out Republic, uh, which we did to a bright future, and take bandwidth public. Um, and this is where the miracles really start happening. Uh, or since I've gotten old, it's the only thing I can remember. I don't know which. <clears throat> so we want to go public, and we're barely growing fast enough at bandwidth to justify a bulge bracket investment bank taking us public. And if we lose revenue in the 2018 timeframe based on what we're projecting, we will not be growing fast enough to support uh, a public offering. And the intensity of an IPO roadshow is such, and many of you probably are familiar with this, you have a whole syndicate of banks that support you. Everybody, you have accounting firms that support you. You have two or three law firms that are supporting you. And as you're building up toward uh, the organizational meeting and the roadshow, you're refining your message. Your accounting is getting really accurate, correcting anything that needs to be corrected. And your, the intensity of the focus on your first period as a public company is, is, in, is phenomenal. Our IPO roadshow is happening three weeks after a massive product launch by a technology consumer company. And much of our 18 forecast is related to this launch and how it does. And it's a dud. And suddenly we have a $7 million hole in our 2018 forecast and we have seven days to figure out $7 million. And you've worked so hard. So this is year 18, and your whole company and the syndicate are all getting ready to go on the road show in about seven days. And you have a $7 million hole because a consumer product launch that had been forecasted to be spectacular is a complete dud. 
So what do I do? I am on my face under a desk in my house, crying out to Jesus Christ, help me. Help me, help me, help me, help me. Rescue us. And say, and he's like, why are you calling me? Tell them I'm trying to go public. I have a gap in my forecast for revenue, trying to see if we can do some business. He calls his whole executive team into the conference room and says to them on a speakerphone in real time, how much are we spending with Morgan this year? Or next year, in 18, we're spending a million. How much if he gives us a good commercial rate can we spend with him next year? And they say, three million. Can you do that? Yes, let's get it signed. There's three against seven and I've got six days left. The company, that had the consumer launch fail was my next call. And had a wonderful conversation with them about keeping the infrastructure up if they would pay us $4 million during the term. They said yes, and this is a, an intense technology company that, that normally gets every pound of flesh. Seven million in seven days, and we hit the first week of the road show, and we're crushing it until the end of the first week when I get a call, revenue recognition on that seven million isn't gonna happen in 18. Accountants, right? <laughs> right, am I right? Recovering attorney, recovering attorney, but accountants, man. Um, I'm in Boston about to pitch the largest institutional investors and I once again find myself on my face, under a desk, crying out to Jesus Christ and opening my Bible desperately, looking for assurance, something. Because you must tell the truth, and I need to be rescued. And I read in the Bible, um, in Psalms, in repentance and rest is my rescue, and it leaps off the page. So what do I do first? I repent of everything. I repent of stuff I hadn't done. I made stuff up, and I repented of it. In repentance and rest is my rescue. Rest? In repentance and rest is my rescue? What? So I text my dad. His time, it's three in the morning. It's five, five in the morning my time. Hey dad, I'm in the middle of it, can't tell you what. Just desperate, please pray. He texts me back in like 15 or 20 minutes. I'll pray. I get ready to go about to leave the hotel room, still just desperately looking for answers before um, I'm gonna have to convey this huge problem we have and probably cancel the road show in the second week and the IPO. My dad texts me back, rest is the word I received. Dude, he tapped my phone, he had to. (laughs) Rest is the word I received. And I mean, yeah, he could have knocked me over with a feather. And we were able with the accountants to resolve the conflict and challenge on interpretation of the RevRec versus contract. And there was another miracle there um, regarding this tech company that allowed us to deliver all that service for four million in the first year without any additional benefit to them beyond that first year, which was a total miracle. We get to the end of the roadshow. Your whole team is in a hotel waiting to party. And I'd never stayed at the Four Seasons before in my life. 
I thought, this is the greatest thing ever. The banks are paying for this. They've flown us around. Let me just tell you, word of the wise for those in the future, they send you the bill from all, for all that stuff later. So it's, it's, it's not on the banks, it's on you. Bankers, right? Um, I'm in the hotel and my general counsel calls me up. Last day of the road show, the IPO is the next day, all the final legal docs, he says it's over. He says, it's over, what do you mean it's over? Yeah, I know it's over. Tomorrow's the IPO. He said, no, all the individual shareholders have to sign what is known as a lockup, preventing individual sales for the first six months so that your stock can do fine. And we had an individual shareholder because, um, well, not because, but we raised money in the early days from my college roommate's mom, my phenomenal partner and best friend in the world, Henry's neighbor's dad, my first cousin, who's a pastor in Chicago, one of his congregants. These were our angels in the early days, and we didn't raise institutional capital until 11 years in. But one of the individual shareholders had four attorneys, and on the night before the IPO, refused to sign the lockup, which would prohibit the offering, because the syndicate would not abide that. And so I got on the phone. Uh, I got on the phone with her and her attorneys, gave her my counsel, what I suggested she do, tried to keep the attorneys at bay, and hung up while they decided what to do. And in the four seasons, I got under the nicest desk <laughs> I had ever seen. And what did I do? I cried my eyes out, asking God for help. And she called back and said, we'll sign. Next day we had our IPO uh, successfully, and it was chapters like that over and over and over uh, that have gotten us to where we are today. Recently, we had another example. We're building a campus in Raleigh and met with the Department of Agriculture Commissioner Troxler in North Carolina <clears throat> about a piece of ground that he owned and amazingly decided to sell us for $30 million to build our campus. That's terrific. We have wonderful development partners who are general uh, builders in our area who are phenomenal, and they agree to underwrite with their partners in banking the project. It's a $350 million project. About the day before the final signing, after we bought the land, we're gonna flip the land to the developers, developers, get underwritten to build $350 million campus. Day before the whole thing is going to get executed, I get a call, we need 45 more million dollars. What? Raleigh is not an NFL city like, say, Atlanta. And a project of this size requires more skin in the game from the tenant because of the market comps of a Raleigh-Durham versus an NFL city like Atlanta. Deal's gonna be off. <coughs> Next day, small company from Cupertino, California, headline in the Raleigh News and Observer, Apple building campus in Raleigh. And I get a call. Hey, we're good. <laughs> Can't make it up.
Can't make it up. Um, two other quick stories, um, because the most important thing for me this morning is not to quote the scripture that I live and breathe daily or try to be a pastor or a missionary because I'm not. I affectionately call myself a red-blooded American capitalist pig. Um, but to hear, to have you hear stories of an active faith, both a business partner like Henry Kastner and a God who cares and is faithful. And I'll give you a couple more examples and then I'll shut up. So my dad was a teacher. We did not have a lot of money, but we had time. He was a climber from California and he would take us into the mountains as kids every summer. So we grew up mountaineering, rock climbing, and I have inherited that with my kids. And so I am the guide. I am the mountain guide for our children. And about four years ago, I attempted the Grand Teton in the Tetons, which I've climbed many times, um, but got stormed off the summit with my son. And so we went back down about 5,000 vertical feet to the base, got a milkshake and a hamburger, grabbed my daughter, who was then available, and the three of us two days later tried to climb it again. We summited successfully, which is 13,770 feet, I think. And th this is a multi-pitch vertical class five climbing, and we're on the descent. And I'm like 50 years old, 48 years old. I'm not 21 anymore. I had run out of the office with my hair on fire, attempted the peak and failed 48 hours before, went back a second time. And the summit isn't the halfway point because the descent is where lots of accidents can occur. We descend, the three of us, and I realize I'm on fumes. I realize I'm not thinking clearly and we are at the top of the biggest rappel point, which is about 250 feet overhanging rappel. So I have a safety line on my daughter, Helen, my son, Daniel lower them down to the final uh, rendezvous point where we have a lot easier climb from there. And so now it's just me and I got rappel on this overhanging rappel, which I've done several times before, but I am not straight at all and I know it. <coughs> I put my head against the granite, and the wind's blowing and I am shaking and we haven't seen anybody on the descent and I cry out to the Lord for help, not knowing what's gonna happen and around the corner, First time we had seen anybody on the descent all day, pops ahead. I look up and he just says, hey, what's going on? And I'm like, what do you mean what's going on? I'm trying to rappel here. Um, and he said, hey, I'm just, just uh, we're up next. And I said, wow, that's awesome. Uh, and I didn't even know what I said. And he said, yeah, I'm, I, uh, this is, he points over here, he goes, this is my wife. We're mountain guides from the Northwest doing some training. And uh, how you doing? I said, no, I'm doing really well. Can you check out my rig here? Can you set up, can you look at my, um, my belay point? And I am all jacked up. And he fixes me and I repel. And I know that sounds crazy. I say it like I'm um, repel, no problem, and descend and look back and I'm amazed at God's timing in my life professionally and personally. And that brings us to this moment that I am in right now. So God says, shelter in me. He promises to rescue us, and he has for me so many times. You can Google our company. We are in the middle of a distributed 
denial of service attack from overseas perpetrators and have been since Saturday. Massive amounts of data being smashing our servers everywhere. And I have a team that's been around the clock successfully fighting and winning. I have customers that have suffered. And we're in the middle of it. We have law enforcement fully involved. And all of this is public knowledge. Attorneys, right? <laughs> you, can, you can see the articles that are out there. And for my investors, it's 8.14 in the morning and this is breakfast and I will be hard back at work at the throttles in this battle. But why am I standing here in Atlanta at a prayer breakfast in the middle of a DDoS attack on our company? And it's because you shelter in him. You run to him and he will smash on your behalf and he will break the back. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you. This was last year? This was uh, about two months ago. Okay. So, um, Rusty, do you wanna say a few words to follow up? Your microphone is off. Yeah, am I there now? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Obviously, there's so much about his story um, and, you know, we can all discuss, but I do want to just emphasize the ending there. He, uh, first off, bandwidth carries about 18 to 20% of all of the audio traffic in America, much of it overseas, but carries about 20% of all the phone calls that are placed in America actually go across bandwidth, okay? The denial of service attack, which he couldn't speak a great deal about at that point, was the largest, most pervasive attack in our history. It originated uh, out of Russia and the FBI and the CIA were wildly involved at that moment. His investors and his customers like Bank of America and Google and Microsoft were wildly less than excited that he was in Atlanta speaking at a prayer breakfast, okay? They just, they just couldn't fathom that. And he said, it will happen. This is what I am doing. In a follow-up meeting, we had an opportunity to have a follow-up meeting. And you all remember he was a Marine. And uh, one of the questions we asked was, how did you communicate with your company during how are you communicating with your company? And he, he, they said they reached out and asked everybody to submit a question. And then his people accumulated the questions and they were gonna answer, he was gonna answer the top two or three. The premier question that came out was a single question, which is, will we settle with them? Are we planning to settle? And I think his response was something like, we will settle when they are on their knees 
and under arrest. Booyah. <laughs> and in fact, the cooperation was there and we are a bit safer on denial of service attacks because they hung in there and stayed with the program. So it's a, a very interesting to, to, to see a leader like him who you know, has faith, has courage built on faith, and uh, is willing. By the way, bandwidth is, I don't remember, Eric, I think it's worth about $20 billion at this point on the public market. And, uh, and that denial of service obviously was, was at the heart of the future of the company. So um, I just thought you guys might be interested in that story. Well, it was fascinating to get to meet him. Uh, you know, he uh, is a bit of a, I didn't know who he was prior to that morning, even though all of us have used his service one way, shape, or form. But to see someone with such a simple faith message having to do with crying out and admitting, I am insufficient, getting underneath the desk. Now, I remember getting underneath the desk in elementary school when we had tornado drills. Anybody else remember tornado drills? You had to get underneath the desk. I remember atomic bomb drills. Yeah. Get under the desk there too. Well, tornadoes happen. Thank good. I guess this is so so strange things. Thank goodness tornadoes happen a whole lot more often than atomic bombs do. Um, but uh, to see his authenticity. And to seek his humility without being humiliated. That is a, a just such a powerful witness to me. Um, I want us to have a little bit of table time and um